Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, September 22nd. That's right. So we're back on the ranch. Right. We're back at Lineport. But it's, it's no it's, field trips today. 85 degrees on September 22nd. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's super crazy, but it's a beautiful weekend. Yeah. Amazing bike rides. Yes. And I'm still thinking about Percocet Park. Good for you. <laughs> that was a really, well, what what the audience doesn't know is that uh, we did go for a stroll around yeah. the grounds right. and uh, saw these different uh, cottages right. um, that had been built in the 19th century all over the uh, grounds. And they really were interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Some of them were over the top with crazy decor and a lot of yard ornaments, lawn ornaments, and uh, some were very simple and had just really interesting details, and it was fun. And I I was thinking more and more about that whole um, camp meeting craze that was going on in the 19th century. Yeah, look, I think uh, it was a very pleasant place to be, and it is interesting. The whole concept of it is interesting. I will tell you that, uh, you know, the idea of having just summer housing that's something short of permanent housing, but that people kind of thrive in a sense of community and drive that much more from being in these units somewhat close together over the course of three or four months. With a common interest. With a common interest. Now, that's and in, the thing. in this case, it's, you know, it's religious, it's spiritual. Well, originally it was. And so, as I mentioned it to uh, folks in New York City in the last week, just describing mm-hmm. Percocet Park, uh, for, after explaining to them what Percocy was, they no one had ever heard of Percocy, um, they couldn't quite get it. Then I messed with the religious aspect. They went, oh, yeah, no interest in that. There, there was very much that reaction. Well, you know, I was thinking about it. And, and there are other great ones that we know about, like Ocean Grove yeah. in New Jersey that's actually tents mm-hmm. with a little shed right. in the back and a kitchen and a bathroom. And then apparently there are a bunch of them in the Northeast mm-hmm. <laughs> all over the place all being built in like the 1870s, okay? There's also Chautauqua, which um, is in upstate New York, right? But that has a whole educational aspect. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, but... but... It's it's religious as well. And there's even like a recreation to scale uh, of uh, Palestine Mm -hmm. on the grounds. (laughs) But it's quite focused on arts, music, literature lecturing as well people still go to that the adams like matthew adams yeah. friend, that their family has gone well, there for years plus the economics of this interest me i mean sure there are a lot of economic challenges for people and sometimes everything seems awfully expensive percocy park isn't terribly expensive and i the places you're mentioning the ocean grove is not terribly expensive i can just tell so well uh, prices have gone up but it's a nice alternative you think about resorts yeah and you think about Wild times. Well, you think about uh, people drinking, etc., and carrying on. Not everybody wants to do that, right? But, yeah. but even Christians yeah. want to cool off, yeah, <laughs> in the summer. But it's, so I can understand wanting to be in a in a place right. where you're not going to. But you can find participate to me the, or be upset the, by other activities. The greater greater interest to me is the notion you can find communities of common interest that are non-religious, that probably aren't uh, economically imposing. And uh, it's a good solution. It's, it's a comfortable environment. It's not a stim- even a stimulating environment uh, that one might seek out and, and spend some time. So it's kind of opens your yeah. eyes a little bit. As we walked through Percocy Park, 
Everybody on their porch said hello. That's right. Started conversations. Ran out to talk to us. That's right. So if you're looking for community and nature, uh, that's a great alternative. It's good to know. It's good to know it's out there. Yeah, it's It's interesting. Even in the 21st century. So we did the exact opposite though this week. You have to admit, we went to the opposite extreme in terms of the way human beings live their lives and congregate. And then we went to a New York City jazz club on uh, Thursday night. We went to... Well, it was my idea. Uh, quite apart from whose idea. I, I'm was. never anxious to drive into the city, right? Yeah. Because especially this term, I'm teaching a lot. Uh, but I had heard from the New York Times that Helen Sung was playing at a little club in the West Village. Right. So here we are, the small town folks that we are, uh, coming to New York City while well, I'm there working, but Tamsin joined me. And now we're downtown in a village and we go to some, uh, I won't say trendy, but I would say somewhat hip downtown village restaurant, which was called, uh, well, I don't know if it's hip, what's but it called? It's, it's called Mary's Fish Camp. Okay. There you go. So, you know, I got there early. Tiny, teeny place. I walk around the area. It's got, Every bar and restaurant I've been reading about in New York Magazine in the village, for the yeah. past year. Right. And so I'm going, oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, But anyway, because we were there at the crack of dawn, like yeah. 5.30. Closer to 6, but yeah. 6. Yeah. Um, we got into Mary's Fish Camp. And it was just a teeny place where they mm-hmm. serve fish. Yeah. None of these places take reservations, by yeah. the way. Yeah. The only, amazing that I they don't take, know how people ever get in. I, it's amazing they take credit cards. And it was fine. Uh, it was it, better than fine. Yes, not and a lot better than fine. And you know what's great about it? Uh, not a lot better than fine. It, it was, was better than fine. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, what was great about it, very good beer and wine Yes. by the glass. Beer on tap. It's the city. Wine. Yeah. They even had Lambrusco. No one ever has Lambrusco. Well, but it's the city. You're not you're not out in Perkasy anymore. I mean, it turns, it's, yeah. It turns <laughs> it's out the different. City, the city is fairly cool. Having said that, uh, not the greatest sardines in the world. But uh, it's, it's a different different area of emphasis, No. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, the Blue Point Grill in Princeton. That's right. Which is one of the great, the great restaurants, great fish restaurants of the of the universe. Of the universe, but, yes. Um, but anyway, anyway, it was a it was a cool place to be, and it was the right thing for us then. It was a quick bite, and then we headed to Smalls, where we stood online and held our breath to see if we get into Smalls. Smalls is a small jazz club. You just looked up how small the they are. In the basement. In the basement. How and, many people? Uh, it has a capacity of somewhere around sixty. Sixty. 60. I think there were more than 60. There might have been, but even so, it's 60. So it's a long line. You had done research. Right. You had talked to people and said, uh, they said, no, nah, don't worry about getting into and smalls. It, and, and they you were know. wrong. They were wrong. So, so, so you got online and you were scared to death that you might have been person 61 and 62 and you wouldn't get in. You're standing on this line for a half hour. They eventually let you in, $20 a person, uh, which is more than reasonable. The owner is at the door in a, taking a $20, $20 bill in a cigar box. I mean, it's like uh, you compared it to one of those clubs in Mrs. Maisel, and I think that was an apt comparison. And there we are down in the basement. It's like you're in the Mrs. Maisel coffee yeah. club or whatever it is, right. but it's a fraction of the size. And it's not as nice as the place where, <laughs> where she's always performing her comedy act, and that says something. You're crammed in. you got a uh, a bartender who's... Uh, running around like crazy, making drinks, and even tougher than that, a waitress who's snaking her way through these crowds trying to sell drinks, and she's succeeding to some degree. Well, this this waitress, yeah, I was so impressed by her. Yeah, and uh, she has to. You're right. It's 
the seating is just random chairs and benches right. crammed into rows. Crammed. And this woman and kind of squeezes her way in between them and waits on every and takes, single and person. Taking credit cards. Yeah. It, was, it was bizarre. Bizarre. Uh, and then, very impressive. So Helen Song comes in with her group. And, and uh, I know you know the names of the people in the group. But just to mention, she w- walks in and she uh, she's there. She might as well be in your living room. Yes. Right? right? Yes. You're 10 feet away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then she plays. I mean, and that's the charm of it. You're there and you have this great uh, jazz pianist and her, her accompanist uh, playing for, you know, an hour or so. So uh, Helen Sung, originally from Texas. Yeah. Originally planned to be a classical pianist. Right. Got, uh, you know, bachelor's degree and uh, master's degree. And then uh, allegedly heard Harry Connick play. That's Harry a, Connick Jr. Why play. not believe it? That's what she says. Um, and, uh, you know, said uh, jazz. That's where it's This at. is not the only woman to be led astray after hearing Harry Connick play. I'm, I'm sure that's not. She's not alone. Okay. But you can you can tell that she's a jazz, she's a classical background when she plays jazz piano. But and what I love to... about her is the just overwhelming power yeah. of her playing. Yeah, she plays. I mean, she is a monster. She's just amazing. She, she's plays uh, in, in, in a uh... no matter what she's doing. Um, so anyway, yes. it was great. I mean, it's not like I can hum her tunes or anything, uh, but we did have a great time. And uh, it was kind of be fun being squeezed yes. down into that little. I would say jazz she has. Club. It's fair to say she almost has a percussive style, but it's it's very inspired. It's very interesting. I was interested that you were you enjoy it as much as you do because you love to tell me don't don't listen to that esoteric jazz. This is this was not that esoteric. Uh, borderline, no. but no. it's fine with me. No. Uh, in any event, so we had a good time. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, if yeah. it weren't such a project to get in there. I would go more often to Smalls because you get a a ticket for the night. Yeah. Uh, We only listened to one set. We could have heard both sets. We could have heard anybody playing after. They have another club across the street called called Mesro. That you can, you get, you know, entrance into Smalls, get you entrance into this. Let me mention one other thing. I know you weren't excited by this, and I don't know how to think about it because how well can it work. But they say, if you get on the website for Smalls and Mesro, that you can stream all their performances. For free. Well, well, they have all these archives of performances. Even you know, you can stream live all their performances. They say, I haven't tried it. I'm not guaranteeing it, but uh, it's interesting. But that's not what it's about. No, it's about being there. Yeah, but if someone wants to check it out, before you go, many many people were not speaking English on the line. That's right. There are many um, clearly visitors, etc. There there are a lot of Scandinavian Uh, Scandinavians. There were some German. Uh, there were people of various Asians. ages. Yeah, there were all kinds of people. Very young people. You know, there to see and people the New York jazz scene. That's right. Uh, no talk of Percocy on the line. Uh, so just to Speaking get, of jazz. Just to speak out. Well, look, I mean, we spent a fair bit on time just now on this, but I think it was very interesting. Um, stuff we're reading in the paper, uh, you know, Porgy and Bess is coming to the Metropolitan Opera. You know, it feels like there's a big production of Porgy and Bess every few years. And there's no reason why there shouldn't be. Deservedly so. Yeah. Uh, and of I mean, course, there's a Wall Street Journal article, and it starts out by 
talking mentioning the two great American well, operas. So the two. So what do you Candide, think of that? which we love. Candide and which and, I love. And Porgy and Bess. And Porgy and Bess. Well, look. I mean, let's just pause for a sec. All right. If you're going to say two, what are the two great operas? There are two great U.S. operas. One's written uh, by uh, Bernstein, and one's written by Gershwin. You go, cool. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know Gershwin. enough about music to no. really opine and, and, on that. Yeah, if you ask me at gunpoint, what's the third? I would say uh, Most Happy Fella by Frank Lesser. It's pretty damn close. But That's it, an opera? It's pretty damn close. Uh, I don't know. we got to call in an expert. Okay. Mark, but, Mark, are you listening? Well, we'll get Mark that more Snyder. later. But uh, in any event. Our, mu- our music and historian. Just, there's a lot of facts here about Porgy and Best that I've kind of never quite nailed down. They nailed down for you. For example, Porgy was based on a book. Uh, by DeBose Hayward, uh, a novel called Porky, uh, which uh, DeBose Hayward and his wife Dorothy uh, made into a play, which was a successful play on Broadway without music. Mm-hmm. Didn't know this. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Gershwin was interested in from, when, from the time he read the novel. He waited till the play had run its course. And then he sat down with DeBose Hayward and his brother Ira, and they put together the opera. And I had always heard as if it was a secret. You know, Sondheim writes in his book, it's a secret. Nobody knows. DeBose Hayward wrote some of the lyrics. They're very clear here. DeBose Hayward wrote lyrics for several songs. I could list them, but it's not that important. But four of the songs, lyrics by DeBose Hayward, four of the songs, lyrics by Ira Gershman. They're different types of songs, but there's right. no secret involved the in it. The more uh, searing um, sort of emotional songs seem to be by Hayward, right? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, that that's correct. Uh, and I got plenty of nothing, or ain't necessarily so. Ira Gershwin. Ira Gershwin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Sondheim, of course, just to complete the circle, makes the point that the Bose Hayward lyrics in his mind are some of the greatest lyrics in American musical history, and then says nothing nice about Ira Gershwin. But whatever. <laughs> um, and they also say they, they make the point here, and again, something I fully didn't appreciate was there's a difference between what we'll call the Broadway musical Porgy and Bess and the opera. That it was much anticipated when the uh, production went on stage in October 1935, but they had cut a lot of what were called the operatic passages that Gershwin had written. That Gershwin had a great deal of pride in. That to him right. was quite right. significant, and it wasn't even that well reviewed. But that's kind of neither here nor there. The music has been preserved. Uh, now it gets performed more than ever as an opera, and they say it stands up as an opera in part because of these passages. Um, and uh, he concludes, uh, I should say, Barry Moore Lawrence Scherer, who's their fine arts, fine music critic, and it's a very good article, says ultimately Gershwin's musical genius and Hayward's intensely uh, human story make Porgy and Bess one of America's greatest treasures. And I, I think that's clearly the case. So maybe we'll see it. I don't know. Right. Metropolitan Opera. Well, he also goes to uh, lengths to say, you know, the whole story of it is still, still resonates today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, aspects of well, that does get a little dicey too because then, violence, then, then there's the political drugs, correctness of it. Poverty. Yeah. Um, there is some love. There is some reluctance. The Times wrote a big article too, and the headline sort of suggested that, that people have some mixed feelings about Porgy because it, it's not fair to portray African Americans in this light, dealing with this kind of situation. In, it's all a limited the time. view. Yeah, it's a limited view, and therefore some people object. Uh, but in any event. That doesn't really interfere with enjoying Porgy and Bess. Well, it's a complex subject, but uh, it is um, amazing. Not as complex as the Times makes it out to be. But in any event, you had something on the Washington Monument. Really? Yes, you did. Okay. Washington Monument, yay, opens back up. Yeah, I've been waiting for that. 
Well, it's been closed a lot. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you realize it, but uh, it you know it was closed for a little bit uh, because of uh, fears around you know nine eleven. There had to be alterations mm-hmm. after nine eleven to kind of protect it mm-hmm. uh, from terrorism. And then in two thousand eleven, there was the earthquake. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, there was an earthquake in Washington D.C. Yeah, it was in. Uh, it was centered in like Virginia or something. Where was I? I don't know, but I remember I was in a faculty meeting yeah. um, at uh, Bucks County Community College, really? and uh, my desk kind of shivered. Really? Uh, the the earth was, moved? Yes, the earth moved. <laughs> you didn't tell me about at that. At least once. <laughs> oh, Good for you. In my lifetime. <laughs> Something. Uh, thank goodness. Um <laughs> And there, there was some damage, yeah. and uh, they actually sent uh, climbers rappelling down the sides of uh, the monument to yeah. check for cracks, etc. And then it closed, uh, you know, it was closed till 2014. And now it's back. No, then they opened it for a little while, then they decided they had to work on the elevator. This is your government. This is my tax dollars at work. Right. Yes. They had to, this, the elevator needed to be redone. Yes, so, I, I don't know, five years. I'm very sensitive to elevator to repairs. To fix the yeah, elevator. I'm sure. But the reason why we love the Washington I'm Monument, waiting for that. Why is that? Because it's an obelisk. Oh, of course. Okay. Who doesn't love an obelisk? <laughs> Okay. I'll miss. I'll pass the uh, obvious joke. The, Go ahead, the, well, the Egyptians uh, like to say that it was a petrified ray of the sun, like mm. um, Aten, the god of Aten. Yeah, Aten. I don't mm. know how you pronounce it. My Egyptian's not that good, and has so it's these you know this tall thing with a little pyramid on the top. Yeah. Okay. Let's face it. It's pretty much a petrified penis. Okay? Oh, my that's God. Why, oh, my God. That's why people love it. You know, who doesn't love a giant penis? Oh, my God. Stop and, it. Uh, so the uh, the Egyptians weren't the only people oh, to man. carve yeah. obelisks, but they did it the best. And they did a lot of it. Yeah. But you know what is yeah. interesting? I'm afraid as to many ask. obelisks as they made, yeah. there are many more. There are like, in Rome alone, there are twice the number of obelisks than are left in Egypt at mm. this time. Mm. You know, the minute people came and saw them, they said, I got to get me some of that. And they took them home. Okay. Um, and so the interesting thing to me is, yes, when do obelisks, why does the Washington Monument end up being an obelisk? And this is why. Yeah. Okay. In the 1830s, Paris gets an obelisk. Okay. And it is... Uh, put up uh, in uh, Paris. Eventually, London feels they need an obelisk. Because let's face it, places like London and New York want to run with the big dogs, and Paris is the big dog. Okay, so um, Egypt gives uh, the UK an obelisk. Eventually, they raise enough money privately to get the obelisk from Egypt to London, and they put it up, and almost immediately, the United States wants one, too, and uh, they are given an obelisk uh, by Egypt, okay, and private money is raised uh, to bring it uh, over to the U.S., and this is all uh, in the um, 1870s, okay, Uh, the London goes up in 1878, the U.S. one is finally opens 1880. You know who pays for a lot of that? Vanderbilt. Yeah. Vanderbilt pays like $100,000 to help uh, 
uh, raise this Cleopatra's needle, it's called, right behind the Met. I've showed it to you right. a number of but, but, times. But okay? what happened to the Washington Monument? Here's the deal. Yeah. Um, so going back to um, Paris, getting theirs in 1830s, yeah. okay, Congress has, in the U.S., has uh, agreed to a lot of money for a monument to Washington. Uh, there's a competition for the designs of the monument. Uh, a guy named, I think his name is uh, Robert Mills from South Carolina, shout out to South Carolina, wins the competition, and his design is an obelisk. Okay, Obelisks have begun to be popular. All right, because Paris has one. All right. They start building the Washington Monument. Yeah. And guess what happens? Civil War. Okay. Money dries up. Interest dries up. Okay. It takes them a while. It takes Congress a while to get back into building this. And by the time, you know, these other um, uh, obelisks are set up in London and New York. Yeah. Obelisks are all the rage, and they get that Washington Monument built. Okay, The magic of an obelisk is that it's a solid piece of stone. It ain't magical if it ain't solid. Okay, In fact, there's one that was never finished, that was left in the quarry, in the Aswan. Okay? Still there. We can see it today because it had a crack. Mm, okay. right? It needs to be solid. So... That makes the Washington Monument kind of problematic. It's not solid. Right. It's all these little blocks. Right. I don't understand why it's interesting at all, to be perfectly frank with you. The Washington Monument has never interested me. The Lincoln Monument looks like Lincoln. That one I understand. But the way I explain to my students, yeah. okay, that makes it okay yeah. that this obelisk has little pieces, yeah. because it's like the United States, right. okay. one out of many. Here's another interesting thing. On the tip top, yeah. it has an aluminum cap. Uh -huh. Okay, A little baby, almost like a pyramid on the top of aluminum. Yeah. It was the largest uh, piece of aluminum casting at the time. It cost a fortune because at the time, aluminum cost was selling for the same price as silver. Mm -hmm. Two years later, all right, a new process is invented for casting aluminum, and the price of aluminum plummets. Yeah, you know, this sounds like it would have been so cheap. This sounds like your standard a couple of years. Your standard government project, which is a disaster. It takes forever, and it comes in way but over anyway, budget. It's open. Yeah. It's free. Yeah, we can go back. You know, I think free is a funny it has word. A good a, view. I wouldn't use the word free. Um, okay, well, let's just see if we can uh, move things along here. There was a short. Uh, oof. There was a story that became big on ESPN. You must understand by now that nobody's more sentimental than sports fans. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way it is. And uh, so there was a big sentimental moment last week having to do with uh, Mike Yastrzemski. Mike Yastrzemski is the grandson of Carl Yastrzemski. Carl Yastrzemski, you know, right, Tamsin? I do. Okay, so he played... I mean, I don't know personally, but I know, well, you know, people revere him. From Long Island. He, he played... And in uh, fact, somebody in my, in the yearbook, yeah. the year ahead of me, yeah. actually posed in, uh, like a Carl Yastrzemski batting pose yeah. okay. for her senior picture. 
In any event, I don't know what year that was, but Carly Stremsky's big year is 1967. So I don't know. This was after 67. Yeah. So Carly Stremsky, just to give you an idea, played more games for the Boston Red Sox than any player besides him played for any other franchise. That's how much of an iconic figure he was. And 1967 I was... I think they the, called him Yaz. Or yes. The Yaz. <clears throat> no, Yaz. Yes. Yes. And 1967 was the big year. He won the Triple Crown. Led the league in home runs, RBIs, and batting average, which hadn't happened for many years. Uh, the team uh, got to the World Series, which is a big thing for Boston. They did not win the World Series. There was a the whole Boston curse, uh, but they came close. Uh, he was the last batter, came close, tried to hit a home run, didn't quite make it. Uh, 2004 was the year the Red Sox finally uh, broke the curse and won the World Series. But that was a painful year for Carl Yastrzemski because his only son, Mike, who was a minor league baseball player, former minor league baseball player, at 43, died. He had a heart attack after hip surgery. Uh, and he had never made it to the major leagues. His son, Mike Yastrzemski, was the subject of what happened this week. So Mike is, is the, the grandson. grandson. So Mike Yastrzemski is in high school and he's a pretty good ball player. And he's now going, uh, this is some years ago, six or seven years ago, being recruited for college. And one of the colleges, which is just making a push to build a big program, is Vanderbilt. And the coach of Vanderbilt is, guess what, a huge Carl Yastrzemski fan, a huge Boston fan. And he sees this kid, Mike Yastrzemski, he's obviously related, and he says, I'm recruiting him and I'm looking at him. I say to myself, look at him as if he's Mike Smith. Look at him as if he's Mike Smith. He can't get carried away by this Yastrzemski thing. And he can't help himself. The kid reminds him of Yastrzemski. He reminds him of Carl. He's got the leadership. He's, he looks that way. He can't help himself. He recruits him. What happens? Huge star. Huge career. Vanderbilt goes to the Little League World Series, and now they're one of the best programs. And sure enough, the kid gets drafted to be in the major leagues. Wait a minute. Vanderbilt goes the... Vanderbilt's a very good baseball team. I could name five... You said Little League no. World Series. No, I'm sorry. College World Series. Okay. Vanderbilt's College because World Series. Because that would be... Cheating, right? That would be cheating. <laughs> send a college team to yes. the little thing. Send Princeton, it would be all right. But <laughs> Vanderbilt, no. So in any event, uh, but a lot of guys from in the majors now played at Vanderbilt. Um, but uh, Mike Chutovsky can't break through. Finally, after six or seven years, gets traded to the Giants. They bring him to the majors, and he catches on. He starts hitting home runs, and sure enough, this is rookie year. He's had a great year. He's established himself as a major leaguer, and. Uh, as it would happen, as it happens sometimes, San Francisco Giants were scheduled to play in an interleague game against the Boston Red Sox in Fenway just last week. And there he is. And who do they have to throw the first pitch of the game? To Mike Yastrzemski, Carl. And the grandfather throws to the grandson. And it's a big emotional moment and people go crazy. And what happens when Mike gets up? Home run. And, of course, people erupt. And, uh, you know, that's all there is to say about it. Really, it's a nice moment. And they interviewed Carl, and he said, the only way I can compare it to anything would be if I compare it to the 67 season. That's what it means to me, him being here. So, good story. Very nice. Very nice. And there's a picture of Yaz there. Right. Yes. It looks pretty good. He does. He's got to be like a zillion years old. I'll do the math while you start talking. Uh, okay. All right. In your head, I bet. Of course. Um, so, I know you feel I've already overstepped the bounds of art talk yes. today, but I'm just going to give a little uh, museum update. Ding, ding, ding. And 
Fans of uh, John Singer Sargent might want to right, drop by the Morgan Library. And you, you know I'm a big fan of the Morgan Library. It's a and John Singer Sargent. Yes, I, I do like um, John Singer Sargent, although this article about him mentions that he never called himself John Singer Sargent. He signed his works John S. Sargent, and he never used Singer, but we all like it. We like the way that sounds, John John Singer Sargent. Oh, okay. But uh, anyway, it is uh, John Singer Sargent Portraits in Charcoal. And, you know, he's famous for his portraits. And I do always say, and I know I've said it on this podcast, I would have loved to have a portrait done by John Sargent. He makes everybody look richer and <laughs> taller and thinner. All right. Uh, so um, he, he ends up doing portraiture studies in Paris. And uh, he has a big scandal when his portrait of Madame X is presented at the Paris Salon in 1884. It's a tremendous, for a lot of uh, reasons, um, it's a total flop. Uh Uh, He's devastated, runs off to England uh, in uh, distress and shame and perhaps convinced that his career is in El Toiletto. Um, and, uh, El Toiletto? El Toiletto. And uh, actually, he has a buddy. He, he's actually um, been befriended by Henry James. Yeah, of course. Right. I can so see this, where this, this is going. This article right mentions there. that uh, you know, he's famous for doing all these portraits of this person, that person, and uh, you know, Churchill and Henry James. Henry James actually helps him create his career in portraiture, makes connections for him in England with uh, all these wealthy dames, etc. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little more important than that. Anyway, the, um, he turns to charcoal at a certain point uh, because it's easier, faster, and uh, I guess uh, he doesn't need the money as much at a certain point, uh, and he's more interested in doing other kinds of works. Uh, but So these charcoal portraits are later, they're fun, They um, seem to have a certain uh, life to them. And I want to remind the audience that I read a great book about Sargent uh, and his subjects called Sargent's Women, Four Lives Behind the Canvas by the author Donna Lucy. Very fun book, a description of some very fun characters uh, from that late 19th century, turn of uh, the 20th century period, including Isabella Stewart Gardner, who was a pip. Okay. All right. Done. All right. <laughs> so Yastrzemski must be in his mid-80s, and he doesn't even stay at games anymore because he's just not comfortable sitting at ball games. He's only in his 80s? Yeah. You know, 1967, you do the math, you figure he's about 30-something. Figure get it from there. But in any event... Uh, yeah, you know, Blue Point Lager, that's, uh, they blew that in the town that he grew up in, if that means anything. So the uh, movies, I want to say something about movies. We don't talk about movies lately, and it's about the time of year you might say, oh, this might be Best Picture. Uh, it turns out there aren't any candidates for Best Picture this year. They won't be giving a Best Picture this year. Of course they will. But uh, you know what's the favorite? Here's something I want you to see, Tamsin. What? A movie that we mentioned last week, or more to the point Armand mentioned last week, once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the favorite to win the Oscar for Best Picture this year. How do you like that? Uh, according to the New York Times, no lesser authority than the New York Times, uh, they say unless people get excited about The Irishman, which is the Scorsese movie, movie coming up, which is the same as all his other movies, except 
instead of Italian gangsters, the Irish gangsters. Uh, or Little Women, which is now will be remade for this, you know, 30th time. Uh, it's going to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And yeah. yeah, because that's the way it's shaping up. There are a lot of reasons. One is it's a pretty decent movie. Uh, they feel that uh, Tarantino ought to win a Best Picture at some point in time. Uh, it made enough money. It made about $130 million. And its uh, major competition uh, isn't that exciting, uh, in part because, number one, it's, perhaps it's Noah Baumbach's upcoming marriage story with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, but no one's over the moon about that. And then you have some other pictures, which are Netflix-produced, and there's a bias in terms of the Oscars against the Netflix pictures, and even they are not that exciting. Uh, besides the Irishman, there's the two popes, which is an interesting conversation between two popes, but I can't see that going anywhere. That's Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. There's Ford versus Ferrari, which is a race car drama uh, by Disney. Uh, I don't think that uh, doesn't sound like a winner, notwithstanding that Christian Bale's in it. There's Jojo Rabbit. And we've seen the previews of that in the movie theaters, which is a whimsical take on Nazi Germany that has divided critics. Uh, and finally, there is the uh, the winner of the latest film festival uh, was Joker. Uh, and a lot of people are getting excited about Joker uh, with Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm sure that's going to be an interesting movie, but it's not going to be Best Picture, frankly. And then you've got things like Judy about Judy Garland and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers and Dolomite is My Name uh, with Eddie Murphy. Those aren't going to be best picture either. So uh, I think we know. I think it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. More to the point. Well, don't you think we got to see it then? I think we have to. All right. I think we should see it. We should go to the movies. We'll have to. But there's not that much to see. Uh, not that much to see. Go ahead. Parmalat. Parmalat. Yeah. So... I'm going to squeeze in some more art here. Yes, good. Art slash business. By all means. All right. So um, uh, there was a, an article in the Wall Street Journal about an art auction that's coming up. Yeah. It's the art that belonged to Callisto Tanzi, who was the founder of Parmalat. Yeah. Okay. This The sort of dairy giant of Italy yeah. uh, that would, kind of went into bankruptcy uh, in... The um, in about 2003, because of a massive accounting fraud discovered, uh, where um, they were, um, I guess, uh, siphoning money off. Callisto Tanzi was siphoning money off uh, from the business, and uh, you know there was all this kind of accounting stuff going on. They had hidden um, that uh, they had like a 14 billion dollar loss. All right, and the and people found out that also in the Cayman Islands uh, there was a they had a, an account in the Cayman Islands yeah. um, that turned out to be empty. Well, apparently it was in Callisto's pockets. He had absconded with some I don't know five hundred million euros allegedly of investors' money. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, he uh, goes to jail. Doesn't really go to jail. Uh, he's on house arrest. He's older, he's ill, etc. Um, but the, at the point when he's, uh, you know, getting indicted or whatever, he turns out to be squirreling away his art collection, okay, uh, in basements, 
in his daughter's house, in his friends' houses, and uh, he's in the process of uh, trying to sell all this art before the government uh, can get their hands on it. And um, what happens is, I guess a TV show of some kind does uh, some investigative reporting and uh, um, finds out there's about to be a big sale go down with a Russian billionaire. Those Russian billionaires, they buy a lot of art. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, because of that, they are able to find some Monet's, Kandinsky, Picasso, etc., squirreled away. They get all these other tips, and in 2009, they find all this art that belonged to him. Now, it's been um, 10 years. It's taken them to put together this big auction in Milan that is happening at the end of October. Meanwhile, a a lot of the the lesser art has been for sale online, and apparently that might have closed by now, but apparently there were big bargains to be had. Now, there are Monet's, Picasso's, etc. Most of them are, you know, lesser works. Nonetheless, they're by big names. Uh, So they say this auction will net either... You know, the conservative estimate is like five to six euros, sure. but might go as high as 12 million euros. When I say five to six euros, I mean five to six million, million yeah. euros. Right. Um, so this money will go back to, um, you know, again, to repay, try to help repay investors uh, for their losses, which it doesn't begin to pay. But, uh, you know, it's uh, an interesting and complex story. Yeah, well, that's the way crime often is. Uh, it's hard to really unpack it. Um, it's hard to know what motivated this guy, honestly. He would think yeah. he had enough money. I mean, really. But in any event, uh, okay, quickly, uh, Rod Labor. So uh, there's an interesting story about Rod Labor. It only comes up because there is a team competition that has been put together um, founded by uh, the management group of Roger Federer that's has sort of caught on. Uh, in the last few years, it's played in Geneva, and uh, it's called uh, the Labor Cup, and uh, it's named after Rod Labor. Why? Because Roger Federer wanted it named after Rod Labor, and uh, Rod Labor was a great tennis player in my lifetime, considered the greatest tennis player, sometimes known as the Rocket, uh, and the uh, he's still alive. Uh, and, uh, as Federer says, uh, you know, well, Federer talks about the fact that he won two Grand Slams. Labor won two Grand Slams. The Grand Slam being Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, uh, the French Open, and the Australian Open. So the idea is to win those four major competitions in the same year. Labor did it twice. Um, but what's interesting and what the story reminded me of were the circumstances, because he won it first in 1962 as a young player. Labor being one of many great Australian players, and Australia dominated tennis at that time. Um, and then afterward, he dropped out of the amateur ranks and he went to the pro ranks. At that point in time, to play in these kind of tournaments, you had to be an amateur. You made mm-hmm. very little money. Once you went to the pros, you were these renegades who were on tour, people like Jack Kramer, people like Bobby Riggs. Mm-hmm. And they would charge money, and they were better players, frankly. Mm-hmm. But they were frozen out of the main tournaments. So he went four or five years where he couldn't play in these tournaments. And then he came back, and in the second year back, oh, well, he came back. These became open tournaments in 1968. And in 1969, he won the Grand Slam again. Mm-hmm. And they asked him how he did it. And he says, now, how I did it was, 
when I played with the pros, where all these guys stay with the amateurs, I, I played at higher competition. Exactly. I became a better player. Yeah. So I came back, and it wasn't that hard for me to come back and beat these guys who were, after all, amateurs. And so he won. He won it uh, twice. Uh, as Federer says here, it was an amazing accomplishment. Uh, and Federer says he modeled his on-court demeanor after labor. It's not just what he achieved, but the way he carries himself. Uh, and they ask laborers, they ask all these players how he feels he stacks up to the current players. And he says, I'm not going to get into that. And they said, okay, fine. Who do you, who would you like to play among these current players if you could? And he said, oh, I'd like to play Federer, but I'd like him to use my wooden racket and I'll use his. <laughs> you know, we're rushing along here because uh, we're a little bit, uh, uh, nervous about getting a chance to watch the Giants game. Oh, God. Because, uh, as so... we all know, Eli, good old Eli, has been benched in favor of the rookie. What's his name? Daniel Jones? Uh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of emotions going on here. Okay, we we want the Giants to win, Right. We want the... I, I'm not that emotional about You don't it. care? I, you know... No. But I, I, no there's I mean, no mixed... The last time uh, no Eli mixed, got benched... No, there's no mixed you know, feelings about it. Uh, the Giants were worse without him. And then they brought him back. Yeah. They, and it, now the Giants are still bad. No, the Giants, Giants' problems go far beyond the quarterback position. So whether they win or lose this game is going to have much more to do with the defense than the quarterback. And uh, you know, Daniel Jones' career... It, you know, what he does in the first few games is not that indicative of how his career is going to go. He's going to struggle at the beginning. We're not going to get overly excited about it. So we'll see. If he happens, if the Giants happen to win a couple of games and they stir a little excitement up, all the better. But what you're really looking for is improvement in the team going forward in the future. And, you know, Eli's career, if it wasn't clearly over, it was pretty close to over. So we all live with this. Well, do you think there's a leader that will yeah, replace the, him? The quarterback. The quarterback and, and the running back. You think Saquon. he can do that? Saquon. Saquon seems like he has a lot Saquon of Saquon was drafted for that reason. Yeah. When Gettleman drafted Saquon, as you know, I spoke to Gettleman directly about this at Mohawk. <laughs> Those who missed that episode was uh, uh, me and, Sa- me and Dan, Dave Gettleman right before I went to the hot Dan's tub. His tongue is in his cheek as he No, says no, that. no. I did talk to Gettleman about it. You did? Yes. And he said to me, I said to him, I like. I told him how I thought about his draft. He was, of course, interested. Are you interested. sure you talked to him or you just talked to no, him when I you talk- re-ran no. the meeting I talked to him. in your head later? I, no, I talked to him and I said, look, I, Dave. <laughs> Dave. Can I call you Dave? <laughs> I said, Dave. Uh, this is all true, by the way. I said, Dave, you know, I like the running back. I like the running back. I like that pick. And he knew who I was talking about. And he said to me, he's a special young man. Special young man. But that's why Gettleman drafted him. Gettleman didn't just draft him because he was the best running back or even the best athlete. He drafted him because he was drafting someone to build the team around. It was the full package. The full package. Personality, everything. And Gettleman believes in that. Okay. And Daniel Jones won't be able to be that guy for a couple of years because he's not going to have that kind of accomplishments. But the, the running back's already the best running back in football. So he will be the guy they line up behind. So we'll see. The Giants are a work in progress. There was a short piece on uh, Jay Leno. And usually we don't get into this, uh, these interviews. 20-odd questions, the journal says. But, you know, Leno, Leno's okay, I guess. I think he said some, uh, some decent things in the interview. Nothing too deep. He collects cars now. Uh, we all know he's loaded. Uh, well, he's been collecting cars since he was 11. But he doesn't. Okay? He, he found a car on the side of the road and played with it 
till he could make it run. Yeah. And it, then he and his buddies would drive it around the all backyard. Right. He's been collecting cars for a long time. The man likes cars. But the other thing is... The man likes to tinker. He also likes stand-up. He still does stand-up. He still does stand-up in, in small venues. And here's his quote. He says, I've never been on vacation vacation in my life. If I get a gig in Shanghai, my wife can poke around and I can go to work. Jerry Seinfeld and I talk about this all the time. What happens if we went on vacation and found out we liked it? As soon as I slack off, that's the beginning of the end. So there's a guy who's still working at it. Uh, he loves what he does, you know, and he feels that the car stuff is a good balance. And his philosophy says life is not that hard. Dale Carnegie said it. Be honest, accept your faults, protect your troops. Okay. Uh, his secret, he said he had a secret as a talk show host, is interviewing people taught me to be a way better listener. Most people aren't really listening, have no idea how to carry on a conversation. Are you listening to this? They are waiting for people to stop talking so they can start talking. I think that's 100% true. It is 100% true. It is 100% true. And, and he's and right I'm about that. I'm always repeating that kind of idea to myself. Right. Shut up. And listen, and listen, and listen, and listen. And uh, I aspire to do that better. And here's and here's here's one thing he said, which I think is true, and it's hard to accept. He said, "I work in a business that's subjective. This is the comedy business. Some people think you suck. Some people think you're great. The problem is they're both right." So there you go. Anyway, I thought that was uh, there was something. So finally, obituary: Phyllis Newman died. So Phyllis Newman. I was more familiar with Phyllis Newman than you were. Is that fair? I think she's more of a, a New York personality. She is. She is. So she was, but there are a couple of funny stories about this. She's been sort of, she was a musical comedy figure for some years. Uh, and she was uh, uh, married to Adolph Green, who was a uh, songwriter with Betty Comden. Betty Comden and Adolph Green did quite a few uh, shows. Um, Phyllis Newman was first nominated for a Tony for Subways Are for Sleeping. And uh, that would turn out to be her greatest moment in terms of getting awards in the theater. Uh, she was a supporting actress nominee. She was in competition with a young Barbara Streisand, and they were often compared later. Barbara Streisand being an I Can Get It For You wholesale, and Phyllis Newman won. Hmm. And uh, and after that, their careers went in different directions. But uh, And she, she would always joke about being totally connected because of Betty Common and Adolph Green and Leonard Bernstein worked with them and all this stuff. But she can, she never did very well getting parts for whatever reason, at least not the parts she wanted. But she even talked about how she got the part for uh, Subway's Offer Sleeping. And here's the quote. She said, my husband watched me audition. He had, he had written it. She said, my husband watched me audition five times, she said. I was livid. Believe me, this is the first time an actress got the part by not sleeping with the author. <laughs> all right. So there you go. Uh, so that's all we have. We have to watch the, the Giants to see what the future holds. Uh, and until next week. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. <laughs>